Hey everyone, welcome back to Ideas Without Borders. I'm Maisha and today I'm bringing to you another episode for the series on media narratives and systemic discrimination. This episode is going to focus on the Muslim perspective and I have two amazing guests here to discuss it with me today. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. Hi, um, I'm Aisha. I was born and raised in Toronto and I'm currently studying psychology and biology at York University. My relevance to this episode is that I am a Muslim. Hello, my name is Sobia and I was born in Pakistan and grew up in Mississauga. I'm currently studying kinesiology at McMaster University and I'm also a Muslim woman. Awesome. Just a side note, I too am a Muslim woman, so I might chime in every now and then, but let's jump right into it. Okay, so how do you think the media represents you and how do you think it should be filtered or interpreted? Unfortunately, I feel that the media doesn't portray Muslims and Islam in a correct way, but actually in a negative light. Let's take the news, for example. Islam is frequently associated with violence, oppression, war, and terrorism, although Islam does not support these things at all. And this is not okay. Associating Islam with negative uh, with negative things, such as the ones I mentioned, generates a lot of fear in individuals, and it deters a lot of people from Muslims. And it's kind of like fear-mongering. Hmm. Especially if people don't know a Muslim in their life, personally, it might really contribute to their image of what a Muslim is. And it can also lead people to violence against Muslims. And it's usually a cause of a lot of the hate crimes that happen against Muslims. And so there's a lot of misrepresentations of Muslims. Right. And it's so it's important that when we're engaging in conversations like this or seeing media whether it's online, on social media, or news platforms, that we critically think about what it is that we're seeing, right? The association that Islam has with terrorism and actively trying to dissociate that because that is not the faith. And we know that, right? Yeah. So for example, we can think about the word jihad. And this often comes up in uh, news and it's used interchangeably with holy war. However, this is completely false. If you go on Google and search define jihad, the first definition that comes up is it's Muslim holy war. And um, then the second one you see is it's defined as struggle. And the correct definition, the Islamic definition for jihad is struggle. And it's more a struggle within yourself to do more good than bad. And if we look at the war side of things, Muslims are not allowed to be the first one to start the war. It's more of you defend yourself and you're not even allowed to hurt trees or animals or other people. So associating Islam with things like violence or terrorism is a gross misrepresentation of what Islam actually stands for. And it's extremely toxic because it leads to hate crimes and negative perceptions, that's for sure. And negative perceptions, yeah. yeah. So it's important to actively try to dissociate regular people who are of the Islamic faith, they're Muslims, with the actual teachings of Islam. And it's important to note that what you see people doing might not exactly be what is taught in the religion. Mm-hmm. Aisha, do you have anything to so- add? Yeah, so I'm going to add on to that. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of a positive example. Um, While I actually don't remember seeing very many Muslims represented in like TV shows at all, there's this one show that comes to mind who does a decent job of representing Muslims. It's a comedy. It's called Still Game, and it's a Scottish TV show in which there's a Muslim character who is a corner store owner. 
yes, they're portrayed as a stereotypical Muslim. They like Pangra music and all that. However, and yeah, there's a lot of stereotypes, but that's what the entire show is based off of. It's funny because they're not just stereotyping Muslims, they're stereotyping the elderly, they're stereotyping bar owners, they're stereotyping the youth, gangsters, they're stereotyping everyone. So yeah, that's fine. I'm not offended by that. The one thing that I did take issue with, however, is this one character, he has a really bad day one day and he goes into the pub, the local pub where all of the main characters gather to chill, hang out, and he's friends with the pub owner. And so he goes in and he's like, you know, like the the way that most people stereotypically would, he goes in and he's like, hey, give me a barkeep, give me like a whiskey or something. Um, I, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he asks for some hard liquor. And the barkeep is like, no, you're Muslim. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna serve you alcohol. You can't drink it, right? And he's like, fine, give me like a vodka or he names a different liquor. And the bar keeps like, okay, that is still an alcoholic drink. I'm not going to serve you that. What else do you want? And he's like, okay, fine, give me an orange juice. While it seems like this is a harmless interaction, it's kind of funny in that, oh, look at these restrictions that you put on yourself. At the same Mm -hmm. time, it shows that he's dissatisfied with his religion and the rules that they're placing on him, which I find is not actually accurate to the real world situation. It shows this man basically denying him liquor, keeping him faithful to his religion, which I actually find is the exact opposite of what typically happens, right? Mm -hmm. Um, From my experience or the experiences of my friends. Mm -hmm. Um, It's actually the other way around. These people are trying to Maisha, were you going to say anything? Yeah, I just wanted to add, this is totally my experience coming into university, moving to another city, where the norm is that when you unwind and relax or have fun or go out and party, that there's always alcohol involved. And I don't partake in that aspect of the celebrations that we have or whatever it might be. But I prefer, you know, like just a soft drink or tea or coffee, and I'll enjoy my time as well. And that's a personal choice I make, but oftentimes, you know, I am encouraged to, you know, also have alcohol, but my personal values and beliefs really encourage me not to do so. And that is what I personally want to abide by, you know? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes when you deny a drink, they give you a kind of a look like either they feel bad for you or like you're weird, you're different. Um, Why? What's up with this restriction? It's not going to hurt you. It's a legal substance. So why can't you have it? Mm -hmm. Um, And they don't really realize the reason behind why we say no. And I just I feel like people need to make more of an effort to understand instead of judge as their initial reaction tends to be. Mm -hmm. And that comes with time and getting to know a fellow Muslim or understanding and learning more about the religion itself. So what do you guys think the media should be showing instead? So as Maisha mentioned earlier, uh, the media should really be focusing on dissociating the acts from the individual and uh, not emphasizing that they are from the religion Islam or associating it with Islam or um, them being a Muslim. Let's just take a simple example. Free will is a human right, and we all know that, but an individual cannot use this as the basis for hurting another person. This is analogous to some of these quote-unquote Muslim terrorists. They say that the Quran or they have proofs that they have the right to hurt other people when this is completely, there's no basis for it. 
And so that's why it's wrong for us to associate Islam with or Muslims with these terrorist attacks. And one other thing that we should remember is 98% of Muslim terror attacks are actually done to Muslims and not to non-Muslims. Yeah, and that itself should show you that why would people of the same faith want to hurt one another? That makes no sense, right? And so it probably doesn't have much to do at all with the faith itself. And alongside with that, I think there's a lot more positive stories that we could be focusing on as well. Uh, The media often... Yeah, you often see in um, the media just all this negative news. It's catchy, you know, people will want to see that. But if we talk about some of the amazing things that Muslim people are doing and how they're contributing to help the positive change in their communities, it's amazing. And I think we need Mm -hmm. to talk more about those stories as well. Yeah, and I can even just give you an example right now. We all have heard about what's going on in Texas with the snow and it just recently ended, right? and how a lot of the homeless people were really in jeopardy of their lives. And, you know, the mosque owners and masjids themselves have opened up their doors to allow the homeless in, cooked big, large meals from them. And this is not something that you see in the media. You don't see this happening on the news, right? But it is happening in real life. And I know because I'm telling you about this now, and I've seen this posted by Instagram accounts run by imams and local community members and leaders in the Muslim community. And I'm specifically talking about Imam Omar Suleiman, and I'll link his Instagram in the description for you guys to check out as well. So yeah, um, it just takes some time to really see why are certain media outlets pushing a certain narrative. And a lot of that has a certain capitalistic viewpoint to it. Mm-hmm. I just also want to add on to that and just say that it's a little unfortunate that to actually hear the Muslim voices, you have to try so hard. They're not readily available. You really have to dig and find the scholars or find certain accounts that will share Muslim stories. Otherwise, you'll just see the negative conversations happening about Islam and Muslims on the media so readily. So I'm going to add on to that. That actually directly leads me into my point. So you're talking about the media and in the sense of like news outlets. News outlets, for the most part, are actually, um, I think secular is the word, where they're not affiliated with any particular religion. So it benefits them to show religion as negative. However, these uh, imams who are posting these positive stories, well, they want to show, there's always a bias, right? They want to show themselves in a positive light. So it just depends on where you're getting your source from. You shouldn't um, rely on only one news outlet or only one source. But then also thinking about like fictional characters or fictional stories, such as TV shows or novels. So because those things, they don't have to be secular. Like if you're writing a Muslim character, you need to have some sort of experience. You can't write that from a secular perspective or from a non-Muslim perspective, I feel like having Muslim writers write Muslim characters would solve the issue because they practice, they know the religion, they've done their research, and they agree with it. So they know how these characters would behave. You end up with more accurate representations, less insulting accurate uh, representations, and less offensive uh, representations. You also wouldn't like have a neurotypical actor play a character with autism, for example. So why are you having a non-Muslim actor or a a non-Muslim person play a Muslim character? It doesn't make sense to me. 
or why would you have a non-Muslim person write a Muslim character? There's one thing to research uh, about this religion, but it's a completely different thing to actually understand what it is you're researching. If you are going to be writing about these things or you're going to be researching, you should be making sure that you're actually hearing these voices of people who believe, right? Having Muslim writers write Muslim characters, I feel like would solve a lot of misrepresentation, misunderstanding issues. Mm -hmm. The perspective from the lived experience is very important, that's for sure. So just based off of that's a good segue into our third question. Is there anything that you do in your daily life that might push back on these narratives, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously? One thing that I kind of have as my life's mantra is that small things make a difference. And that's truly the case in this situation as well. I find that having honest conversations with people and just talking with regular people and letting them know my story, myself, talking about what Islam really says rather than, you know, what the media says, that is how I push back on these false narratives. So just for example, I used to volunteer at this cardiology clinic and I had a patient come in one time and he asked me if my parents forced me to wear my hijab. It's these sort of conversations that we need to be having. On my Instagram, you'll find that I get a lot of questions relating to Islam. Several people have reached out to me and said they want to learn a bit more because I openly talk about Islam on my social media because I think as Muslims, we should be confident. The media often pushes us to hide ourselves and our stories and Uh try to fit in. But it's really important that we be confidently Muslim. And this applies for anything that you are. Just be confident in who you are. And I think that's how we can create that dialogue where we will change perspectives. So one thing I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about was my hijab story. And this kind of relates to that individual who asked me about whether my parents forced me to wear hijab. My story is that when I was in grade six, I started having like an existential crisis because my sister, uh, I was at like a party with her and her non-Muslim friend asked her why I didn't wear hijab when my sister did. And my sister said, oh, it's because she hasn't chosen to wear hijab. And I thought my whole life, you know, maybe there come a day that my mom like says, hey, you know, you're 12 now, you should start wearing hijab. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, sure. And then it would be like, you know, a certain day that it happens. But it was then that I kind of realized, you know, like, I really need to think about this decision. And I was worried, what are people going to say? What's going to happen? And it was a, a summer of lots of reflection. But then I decided the following year, the school year, it was grade eight. I could have started wearing it in grade nine when nobody would really know me. It would have been a new school. But I chose to start in grade eight because I wanted to just you know, overcome that barrier of what are people going to think of being judged? And I want to push myself. And so I think it's through sharing these type of stories and talking about our real life experiences that will help other people realize that, you know, we're just regular human beings with regular lives. And we're not like, we're not going up in some cult where they teach us to like do violence, like forced, and um, we're oppressed or something. And one key thing to note here is that there's actually no compulsion in Islam. At the end of the day, fact check, talk to actual people in your community. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And if you ever have any questions and you're scared to ask anyone else, I'm all of it's available. I think everyone in this podcast right now are completely down to have that conversation. Yes, of course. And also, I would 
recommend going to the proper sources, as Aisha talked about earlier, talking to actual Muslims. And when you're on Google and things like that, I, as I mentioned before, defining things on Google isn't the best way to go about it, but actually hearing proper Muslim scholars talking about Islam. And I can give you some names so that you have ideas of the type of people you keep an eye out for. And so that includes people like Numan Ali Khan, Mufti Mank, Omar Suleiman, and Yasmin Mugahid. There's so many Muslims out there, and these are good people to reach out to. Even like Yusuf Estes, there's mm-hmm. so many. And I'll list these titles and names in the description. So if you guys really want to go and research and learn more about them, they'll be there for you to see. Aisha, is there anything you would like to say? Yeah, so actually that gives me the perfect segue into my subway story. I was going to talk about a different story, but I'm going to, all of my stories come from the subway because Toronto. So late late night Toronto, um, <laughs> on the subway, alone, a girl, a Muslim mm-hmm. wearing a hijab, something is going to happen. So what ended up happening, which I wasn't actually offended by this at all, but I was just sitting, I was reading on the subway and this guy comes up to me and he sees me uh, wearing a hijab. So he knows I'm Muslim. It's kind of like a sign. He starts talking to me about religion. He pulls out this little card that had, uh, I think it like had an ayat or something on it. And he started telling me about the history of it or the significance of it. And just to make sure that listeners know an ayat is really just a verse. It's just a small section or a sentence in the Quran. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he pulled this card out with this line on it and started explaining it to me and what it meant to him. Something about his grandmother having taught it to him and passing it on, that type of thing. I was listening. I was being polite. I wasn't entirely certain what he was saying or explaining. But, you know, you have to be respectful. And he wasn't harassing me or bothering me or anything. But someone else saw this happen and he approached me and he's like I'm sorry is this guy bothering you and being like the shy I think I was in like first year the shy first year uh, student that I was I was just like no very quietly very meekly like no I'm okay but he took that to mean no I'm okay but I'm like I'm actually not okay but I'm just saying that I am so that people will leave me alone um Yeah, like, I was like, I'm fine. Like, I'm getting off in three stops. I don't mind listening to this guy. It clearly he needs interaction. And it's interesting to learn what other people think or learn about other people's stories, right? If it Mm -hmm. got creepy at some point, or if I became uncomfortable, I have enough common sense to get off the train. Being a Torontonian, I'm used to that. But then he just he kind of pressured it almost like he came and sat in between us. So I was on the inside seat and the guy was on like a couple seats away. He was just talking across the seats. It's not even like he was all up in my space or anything. But then this guy Mm -hmm. comes and sits between us as a barrier. And I understand what he was trying to do. And I respect that because as a woman, um, I can see how if an unknown male approaches you, it can be threatening. I see he did it with good intentions, Mm -hmm. but it was a little bit ignorant. Good intentions aren't always the right thing to do. Still, I'm again, I'm not like offended about this incident at all. He did what he thought was right. Mm -hmm. And I did what I thought was right. But those type of things where people make assumptions about you. They assume if someone is approaching you and talking to you about religion, that it's a bad thing, that it's unwanted, that you don't want that interaction happening, right? 
Because of things like that, whenever I see like women being harassed or especially hijabi women being harassed by anyone, really, why are you wearing a hijab? Go back to the country you came from. Comments like that. I'll go up and show my support, but I won't interact unless I see that it's necessary. Could be dangerous, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sometimes all a woman really needs in order to defend herself or even just put herself in a safer situation is have someone there, have someone like that company. Hey, do you want to go sit in a different part of the cart? If the person says yes, you you go with them, right? If the person says no, respect that, right? Respect that they don't want, um, mm-hmm. they, they appreciate your support, but they don't need it. They don't want it. They're comfortable on their own right? It's just the reading the situation. Also, again, like you said, don't interfere because it might not always be safe. So you shouldn't bother correcting bigots because you're just going to hurt your own mental health. They're not willing to listen. They don't want to listen. They're not receptive. It's not a discussion. It's a rant. Mm -hmm. However, if people do want to learn about something, they'll ask you. And if you know these people, like a lot of my friends, sometimes an issue or a topic will come up and they'll say, hey, you're a Muslim. What's your opinion on this? In that case, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Correct their misunderstandings. Those people are willing to listen. They're open-minded. It's not talking to a wall with those type of people. So again, you have to know who you should be explaining yourself to. And I think it's also important to not just assume whether someone is willing to have the conversation or not. I think if you give them a little chance, that's always a good idea because perhaps their question was just worded in a way that they didn't mean to be ignorant, but that's all they knew. And also, I just want to say that although we're sharing stories of times when people are ignorant or are being kind of Islamophobic, there are also many stories of non-Muslims being so supportive of Muslims as well. And uh, this doesn't really necessarily relate that much to the question, but I just want to say that there are a lot of allies out there too. And so we're definitely not saying that none of those people exist, but the media definitely doesn't really seem to be an ally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So final question of the day, is there anything else that you would like to mention? Sure, I can start off. At university, we learn to be critical thinkers. And, you know, we have assignments like reading research articles written by PhD or doctorate students, but then finding limitations or flaws in their research design. That just goes to show the level of skepticism and critical thinking that university tries to ingrain in us. And so what I urge everyone listening to this podcast to do is use that same level of skepticism with regards to how media portrays Islam and many different other minorities that um, Maisha is going to be talking about throughout the podcast. It's important that we don't just take what we hear as facts. We have to check things out and make sure we go to the right sources. And unfortunately, the way that the internet works nowadays is it really just encourages a group think. If you feel a certain way you're going to be suggested certain Facebook groups or TikToks or things Mm -hmm. like that, that just simply support your way of thinking. And so it's important to play the devil's advocate sometimes for ourselves. And um, one last thing I want to mention is, as Aisha mentioned throughout the podcast, it's really important that we hear the proper Muslim stories and find correct media representation of Muslims. 
I want to mention that McMaster University, we have a magazine called the Mirror Magazine, and it is a community magazine which features Muslim artists, photographers, writers. And so I would encourage everyone to reach out and get a copy. We're going to be having our launch event on April 1st, and you can find us on social media. We are called Mac MSA Mirror. Get a copy, come out to the event, find out what Muslims are really about. Awesome. Aisha, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I'm just going to add one thing. So we were talking about like Muslim writers writing about Muslim characters. And very recently, like within this week, I was exposed to a novel called The Translator by Layla Abulela or Abulila. If I'm saying her name wrong, I'm so sorry. But she's a Sudanese Muslim writer. And this entire story is about this Sudanese widow who is a Muslim and born and raised in Scotland. And it's the first accurate account of a Muslim person, Muslim woman, especially, that I've ever read. And I saw this and I'm like, wow, I feel represented, which is such a rare experience for me, being Muslim, being a person of color, right? I have been gushing about this book to anyone, anyone who'll listen. I would highly recommend it because, again, a Muslim writer writing an accurate account of Muslim women in this story, like who would have thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I will which also is- list the title of the book in the description for you guys to check out if you have some time. Thank you, you so much, yeah. That's the reason I emphasize get people who actually represent the audience or represent the character that you want to write if you're a writer. You, you need to talk to these people. You need to get a lived experience in order to tell something accurately and for it to not only resonate with the people who you're writing about, because again, I don't think we're a majority here. We're, we're pretty much a minority, especially in like places like Canada, England, Scotland, whatever. So where we're not the majority, we're not who this is written for, but what it also does is it fixes or corrects some of these stereotypes by giving you the true story, giving you the real way people react in certain situations, giving you a human reaction. So yeah, that's just my little addition. I'm going to have to add that to my reading list. <laughs> yeah, we'll all take a Please look. Please do. Awesome. That was an amazing conversation. Super insightful. And thanks for bringing to the forefront all of these implicit or even explicit biases we might have. Speaking of Muslim writers telling their own stories, I have Anusha Alamgir here with me today. She's an immigrant Muslim who moved to the U.S. in 2016. She's majoring in marketing at the University of Texas at Dallas and was a senior writer for The Comet Life. Welcome to Ideas Without Borders, Anusha. Hey, Maisha, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, let's jump right into it. So how do you think the media represents you and how do you think it should be filtered or interpreted? So if there's one thing I found is that the Western media isn't obviously very kind to Muslims, whether they're immigrants or, you know, Western-born Muslims, those that were born and raised here. It's the same for all of them. We're basically a community that has been, you know, marginalized a lot over the past few decades, especially following the September 11 attacks in the U.S. That was obviously a big game changer for the whole world, not just the U.S. 
And I believe that mm-hmm. it's been, yeah, it's been sort of like a catalyst to, you know, anti-Muslim rhetoric throughout the nation and throughout the Western world. I was actually reading recently that an analysis of over 900 Hollywood films concluded that Arab or Muslim men were usually, you know, represented as terrorists or other, some sort of villains and never the hero almost. And then uh, another study found that news about Muslims was, you know, generally about terrorism and that an analysis of news coverage by three major networks revealed that 75% of stories that focused on Muslims was about ISIS or Daesh or any other militant groups, which is pretty depressing now that I think about it, you know, because we're so much more than the negatives. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's as if media is sort of programming people to believe a certain way by pushing the same narratives. Right? Yeah, I, I agree. No, I agree. <laughs> because I feel like there's so much more to us than just these negative, you know, narratives. I actually have three examples of three women entrepreneurs in the U.S. and Canada, I believe, that Mm -hmm. have, you know, that are battling this stereotype against um, oppression and just, you know, just all kinds of negative emotions associated with Islam. So the first one that I recently learned about and the fact that I just recently learned about it and that I never, you know, knew about these women growing up, that goes to show how how hidden these talents and these success stories are from the general population in terms of media, you know, media exposure and stuff like that. So if Muslim girls like myself don't know about it, then you can almost bet that the rest of the population probably doesn't know about them. Mm-hmm. An example would be, you know, Ibtihaj Muhammad, who is a successful African-American Muslim hijab-bearing female Olympian who happens to be a successful business owner. And that's really saying something because, you know, she's not only defeating stereotypes, she's making a name for herself in the world. Yeah, and you guys can Google her. She's actually really incredible and she competed in fencing in the Olympics. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you can expect that, right? I mean, as a, as a Muslim girl, you'll be like, wait, that can happen. Like that, that could be one of us in those scenarios. That's kind of, that's crazy. And then some, uh, one, another story that I really loved learning about was Huda Khusi. I can't pronounce her name. I'm so bad at pronouncing names, <laughs> but she's actually a female entrepreneur who recently opened a salon intended for Muslim women especially those who observe the hijab and who need their privacy when coming to salons. And in the grand scheme of things, you'll be like, you know what, that's not really that big. But for those of us who know the struggle, that's actually a pretty big thing. And I, I mean, I would definitely go to a place like that, you know, a place that values my need for privacy while giving me the same five-star level of experience that basically every other salon in the U.S. or Canada might provide to their clientele. Mm -hmm. that's amazing yeah Yeah. and then my last example would be Linda Sarsour who is an American political activist now it's true that there's a lot of controversy surrounding her but at the end of the day she's you know getting that exposure in the media and that's saying a lot because when you think of Muslim women generally who are in the public eye nowadays my I mean at least my mind goes straight to her And that's saying something because she's sacrificed a lot. She's actually, you know, she's been arrested several times and she's still here. And she's she's spoken about really controversial matters. And that's kind of, I feel like that courage is not easy for Muslims to possess Mm -hmm. in the Western world. 
-hmm. because oftentimes just having that courage or just having an opinion about things is just sometimes it's just an unnecessary burden to have I feel like you know when you're battling other stuff other stereotypes or other anti-islamic rhetoric against you yeah sort of like an internal struggle to do what do I show who I really am I know who I am and I know it's great but what if people don't think so right yeah it's just like you're basically battling your internalized islamophobia honestly if it comes down to it and then at the end of the day you're not like oh you know what I'm gonna speak about this or whatever because it takes it takes a long time to get to that position where you're confident enough in who you are to speak out about other matters that are not you know necessarily pertaining to you so that's saying a lot and I feel like if people like these three women were given more exposure in the media, then maybe the narrative surrounding Islam and, you know, its people, basically, it would be a lot more positive than it is right now. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. And you sort of answered my second question, which was, what do you think the media should be showing instead? Is there anything else that you would like to add? Not off the top of my head right now, but just, you know, just examples like these three women. And there's there's a large large population of Muslims in the Western world. It's actually a myth that most Muslims are in the Middle East. The Middle East accounts for true. probably like thirteen percent of all Muslims in the world, and that's a really small number, you know, compared to the stereotype that you have of all all Muslims being Arabs. Um, yeah. And considering <laughs> that there are about one point eight billion Muslims, in the exactly, world. and only thirteen percent of them happen to be Arab. That's saying a lot. So, you know, it's just these three women, they're just three people out of billions, honestly, or like millions, I should say more like that are, you know, making a name for themselves and are doing something positive for their communities, for their society. But those success stories, they're often hidden because of the hate that is often found, you know, the if you Google, if you Google Muslims in the U.S. or in Canada, you'll often find some sort of news coverage that's not exactly positive, mm-hmm. which is which is sad, you know, because there's a lot of good things out there, but they're just, you know, wailed behind the hate. Yeah, and you just gave some really good examples of the good things, you know, that Muslims are doing. So, yeah. Is there anything else you do in your daily life that helps push back on these narratives? So as you mentioned, I am an immigrant who came from Pakistan here to the U.S. in 2016, coincidentally the same year that former President Trump was elected. And it's not that, you know, I'm against a person or, a, or like a whole community or like a political party. It's just I do admit that certain confidence, certain courage was given to Americans after President Trump was elected, because I feel like that kind of, you know, misogyny and racism and, you know, xenophobia, that's kind of, it was all already in American society. It's just, they were given a platform to talk about it. And oftentimes it wasn't at like a national scale. It was mostly people like me, you know, young people in high school or young people in college that met the brunt of this. So we were the ones who had to deal with, you know, passive aggressive comments and just, all or all around stereotypes you know I ne- I've never experienced so many stereotypes as I did in high school mm-hmm. and that's saying something <laughs> but I've you know in all my years of being in the U.S. I've and you know it's true that initially I was trying to fit in just trying to be like every other person there was just so I wouldn't feel like an alien almost mm-hmm. but 
it's, you know, in the recent years, I've come to find out that it's much easier to stand out than it is to blend in. And that's saying something. So as far as pushing the narrative, the simplest example I could think of is convincing my managers at work to let me pray in the break room or having like a permanent prayer mat in the break room to have for me and my fellow Muslim employees to pray. That's kind of a big thing because, you know, in a in a society that's predominantly Christian with, you know, the, the majority, and especially at the retail store where, where majority of the workers are white Americans, to have that kind of inclusivity, that's kind of saying a lot. And I, I'm really proud of the fact that I'm never ashamed to just, you know, pause my work and go pray in the break room. Because if nothing else, it's making me seem normal and it's normalizing my religion. And that's kind of all we need, I think. Yeah, and I think that's a great way for them to get exposure to people who are Muslim, real people who are Muslim and how we're exactly just normal like anyone else. Yeah, it's not we're not just people on a TV screen being, you know, being shown as terrorists or being seen as just crying people in the middle of a war torn land. You know, we're more than that. We're here and we're not just, you know, we're not just a figment of your of the media's narrative. Um, Did you know that the media, when the media covers, especially American media, when it covers a story featuring a Muslim incident or something pertaining to a Muslim, for example, there is an attack and a Muslim is involved, Mm -hmm. that media, it gets nearly 449% exposure compared to any other sort of media. So that's, you know, it's like the more the media feeds into this whole narrative, the more people want to see it. And it's normalizing the wrong thing and honestly I feel like people like me or just you know Linda Sarsour or whoever else we're just trying to push back and make them see the other side of the coin yeah exactly I totally understand that um so is there anything else that you would like to mention that you haven't already mentioned so two things first one is um and I was thinking about this recently you know when you asked me to do this podcast I was like you know what else is there and and I was reading the other great responses that you've had Mm -hmm. and I it got me thinking that there was a series that I watched it's called Degrassi the next class I think I believe it's on Netflix and I couldn't tell you the whole plot of that whole thing it's been so long and I don't remember it but the one thing that really stuck with me was this story revolving around two Muslim girls within that school Mm-hmm. So I believe the story is based in Canada, which is obviously very different than the U.S. <laughs> There's, we can have like a whole different podcast about that. Right. Um, <laughs> but the main message of the whole thing was that the, the one girl who was, you know, born and raised in Canada, she's a you know visible Muslim, basically, I would say, because she wears a hijab. She kind of meets the Syrian refugee who comes over to Canada and joins her high school and initially they both observe the hijab but it's kind of like a story of the Syrian refugee where she she sees the people around her and she feels more confident after taking her hijab off only because it was forced on her as a kid so she's not very comfortable with it and when she takes it off that's when she feels confident so the girl who was raised in Canada as a Muslim and she wears the hijab she starts thinking people are starting to warm up to her Syrian friend more despite the fact that she is the one who's raised among them and you know the Syrian girl is technically a foreigner so the girl who was raised her she takes off her hijab for five minutes and she walks in the hallway and you can see it that on her face it's like 
she feels naked honestly you know and yeah. it's just it, that moment really stuck with me because as a hijab observing girl how many times have we thought you know what would happen if i just took it off and just walked out in the street like would people look at me would anyone say something would they even notice mm-hmm. and you could see it on her face like the people around her they didn't notice they just you know went about their lives but to her it was such a monumental moment but then you know she felt naked and basically she went back in the bathroom and she wore it again and she just felt more confident than ever and that's why i love this series because it can show you that it's not the fact that the girl who was raised in canada or the syrian refugee either of those girls they're not wrong in what they're doing it's just different you know sides of the spectrum and that's something i feel like we need to normalize more that you can still be a muslim and still choose to be on separate ends of the spectrum it it doesn't have to be you know right or wrong or you're not like a good muslim or whatever yeah and especially because there are so many muslims you know everyone might practice a little differently you know exactly and it's not anyone's place to judge that it's 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 like people saying you know study the religion not the people because the yeah. religion is perfect the people aren't well thanks for having this conversation with me today of course it was a pleasure awesome i hope listeners that you all learned something valuable today and stay tuned for the next episode guys the series is still going on and it'll continue to be about media narratives and systemic discrimination see you next time on ideas about borders This podcast is run by the student members of the University of Waterloo's Engineers Without Borders chapter. The University of Waterloo is situated on the Haldeman Tract, land that was promised to the Six Nations of the Grand River and is the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We encourage you to take a moment to also consider and acknowledge the land from which you are listening.